Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? (laughs) Good evening. You're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to bonus episode number five. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing two stories for you about ancient artifacts and chilling challenges, both of them plumbed from the depths of my extensive audio archive. I sincerely hope you enjoy them and that you'll join me each and every Wednesday for more terrifying tales from my creep-filled crypt. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy even more tales from my archives, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up as a patron today at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. There you'll get access to my audio archives dating back to 2012, including one-off stories and extended episodes of my podcast, all of them ad-free. Thank you for your support. Now, it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So, lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us courtesy of author Aaron Shotwell. In it, we learn the hard way that some things covered and unknown to us are better off that way. Without further ado, I present to you, They Die Nameless. 
My name is J. My name is Ada. My name is Dem Aim. I've been writing these words over and over for the past twelve hours, writing to remind myself. Yet, no matter how many times I try to write it, it never lasts through the final stroke of the pen. I suspect it won't be long before the memory fades as well. I just hope this journal finds its way into someone's hands. Anyone's hands. Please, whoever you are, please remember me. June 5th. 1964. Since before my university years, I have been fascinated by ancient Egypt, the cradle of civilization where gods and empires rose from untamed sands. These stories of our beginnings lay buried in silent tombs for thousands of years. The Valley of the Kings held answers to many mysteries, and sometimes new mysteries for the finding a wealth of revelations and surprises, and its allure drew me to the life of a historian many years ago. Above and beyond the profession, unveiling these wonders has been my greatest pleasure. To that end, today is a momentous day for my career. Until today, my research had been limited to secondary sources. As one might imagine, gaining access to original texts and artifacts, can be a challenge. Yet I have the greatest fortune of receiving a rare donation concerning my most recent subject of intrigue, courtesy of a generous private collector. Unfortunately, for the sake of privacy, he wishes to retain anonymity in all publications. Still, though I cannot credit him for his contribution, I am most grateful." My current work involves the end of the 18th dynasty, family line of Akinetitan, and his controversial rejection of the old pantheon. Their reign is generally accepted to have ended with the death of his son, Tutankhamun. However, the contents of the boy king's burial chamber would suggest otherwise, namely the two fetuses buried alongside of him, each in its own sarcophagus. One died in what appeared to be its seventh month of prenatal development, the other in its fifth. Their identities and the causes of their miscarriage are, as of yet, unknown. My anonymous benefactor will be supplying me with those very same sarcophagi. Per request, he has sent them to my office at the University of Southampton. Hopefully, their examination will provide me with a valuable lead in answering these questions once and for all. The package will arrive by month's end, and I am eager to begin. June 29, 1964 The package arrived this morning, though in a rather precarious state, I must say, left unattended at my office door rather than the security desk as requested. The package itself was less than sturdy, Hardly adequate protection for such priceless treasures. I'll be sure to voice my concern to the delivery company in the near future. The artifacts are no worse for wear, however, and they are beautiful indeed. My benefactor kept them pristine, clearly not in a dusty storage facility, as I might have imagined. Two tiny sarcophagi, adorned in black and gold, each containing an even smaller sarcophagus, like Russian nesting dolls, and their shriveled remains would have rested therein. I had expected them to be brittle, yet they weathered the ages with surprising integrity. Unfortunately, the bodies themselves are unavailable to me. They are closely guarded at another facility, granting strictly limited access, and rightly so. Regardless, the coffins alone are a promising starting point in my research all the same. I will begin my work at once. July 10th, 1964 
The coffins have been in my possession for over a week now, and they provide more questions than answers. The photographs I had seen before their arrival showed no obvious signs of identity, so I suspected a more careful examination would be necessary. Yet they've yielded nothing. No names, of course. No epithets, no prayers, no symbols of protection. Not even the smallest indication of ritualistic practice concerning such deaths. That these fetuses were embalmed and entombed in royal fashion, yet put to rest with no marks of distinction, is a confounding enigma. I can only assume that they were Tutankhamun's miscarried children, based on how near they were found to his resting place. And even that poorly supported conclusion lends no clue to the circumstances surrounding their deaths. Clearly, these two were of great importance. Their bodies were treated with the same care as a king. Why, then, would they die nameless? Why would it be permitted? This is no folly of incompetence or neglect. No, I can say with confidence that they were deliberately omitted. A very puzzling. July 23, 1964 at the height of my frustration, I have made an astonishing discovery. To be honest, I am surprised that I am the first to notice it, or at least the first to mention it. At the foot of one of the inner sarcophagi, near the edge of the lip beneath the lid, I found a very fine, nearly undetectable slit in the clay. It could easily be mistaken for a stress fracture, and I almost dismissed it as such. However, when I adjusted my desk lamp, that's when I saw it. Something deep in the slit reflecting the faintest touch of light. After probing with a needle and a pair of tweezers, I was able to extract a small, tightly folded piece of papyrus reed parchment. Of course, it did not age as well as the clay sarcophagus, made thin and weak at its ancient seams. Keeping it intact whilst... Unfolding was a delicate and trying task, yet mostly successful. The last bit adheres to itself rather strongly and with evident purpose. The ink is quite faded, but I have been able to discern the following. Let their names die with them, sealed in earth and forgotten. They were called... Doubtless the last bit conceals what would have been their names in life had they survived. Though risky, I may be able to undo the last few folds with the careful application of a razor blade and a non-corrosive solvent. But I must use caution, as this could very well be the key to solving this riddle, thereby documenting a solid conclusion to an important period in Egypt's history. July 24th, 1964 I've been staring at this blank page for a while now, trying to find the words to describe what I experienced last night. It sounds ludicrous, no matter how I think to phrase it, so I've been trying to rationalize it. It may be due to lack of sleep or perhaps mounting frustration, perhaps oncoming sickness or feverish hallucinations. I am uncertain, but I cannot fathom the alternative. Yet, for all my reasoning, I cannot dismiss the chill crawling over my skin. The last of the parchment's folds gave more easily than I expected, requiring very little pressure at all, and they revealed what I now struggle to explain. I understand the characters that I saw. I understood their meanings and uses individually. I understood the sounds they should have made. But together, as I saw them in that state, they evoked no thought. Only a dense fog of confusion, and any semblance of meaning dissolved from my mind the moment I looked away. Even as I attempted to copy the characters I saw, to put them to paper, I found that I was unable 
I understood the lines that composed them, yet I could not move my hand to recreate them. It is as though these words, these names, refused to be repeated. Yet I unfolded the last bit. I swear that I felt a gust of cold air rush over me. I heard a wordless whisper in my ear calling me. It's a peculiar feeling. And as I labor to overcome it, I feel something dreadful surrounding these names. Something dark. What in the world have I disturbed? August 12th, 1964 I have ceased my study. I would return the artifacts to my benefactor if they did not frighten me so. I'd be in the same room to see them sitting atop my desk as I stand at a distance is unbearable. The parchment is nowhere to be found, and for that I am grateful. I dare not set eyes upon those characters again, for just the one glance will certainly haunt me for life as it is. I've had horrible, relentless visions since the night I unveiled them, visions of suffering and regret, I will not set foot in that office again, not while those terrible things remain. I will be leaving the city tonight. I do not know where I'll go, but I am compelled to flee. I cannot abide this place. It's being tainted. I saw the jackal last night. He spoke of false gods. October 18th, 1964. I'm running now. Not home or anywhere specific, just away. I have to keep moving or they'll find me again. The two girls, two little girls with silver crowns watching from the darkness. Wherever I go, they find me, and the shadows rattle like scarabs beneath their feet. Always the smell of sand in the wind, and they appear before me. They tell me they bring the wrath of the lion, the justice of Sekhmet. They tell me their names, a sound my mind cannot understand or tolerate, a sound not for the living. I must run. The names torment me. No gods before Ra. As are his faithful, so is the fate of Aiden. December 6th, 1964. I return to the university today, perhaps in the hopes that I may appease the dead, that I may somehow give their names back to the void, and the unborn daughters might leave me in peace. I returned as a stranger. Colleagues had forgotten my name, old friends had forgotten my face, and my office, where my curse began, had never existed. In its place... I found nothing more than a wall connecting the rooms that once sat to its left and right. A wall yellowed with the same age as the building itself. I'll find no asylum here. I will move on. But I grow weary. And the Lion Woman awaits my resignation. May 30th, 1965 The months have crawled by stripping away my former life little by little. I am without a home. I live in my car and I steal to survive. Nobody seems to notice me anymore. They forget me as quickly as they see me. Nobody listens to my cries for help and I sometimes believe they may not even hear my voice. I press on through the streets as a broken man trudging more than walking, and they move past me without a second glance. My parents no longer know me. They never had a son. I have become a ghost, a lost cause with nowhere left to turn. My car broke down two days ago, no time to find another, no time to stop. I flee on foot. I sleep only where I lose consciousness. I pray they don't take me in my sleep and I count my blessings when I wake where I collapse. But I always see them waiting for me in the last moments of dusk before sunrise. 
I've taken shelter in a sewage tunnel for the night, but this is where I will likely find my final rest. I've grown too tired to stand. I cannot go on. I await my judgment. May 31st, 1965 When the sun last set, Aiton's gaze turned from me as it did from them. The boy king came to me, adorned in his burial garb, and he spoke with the hiss of the cobra. He gave me the names of his daughters and with them an understanding. To know faith in Aiton is to know the anger of Ra. To know Aiton's faithful is to know the wrath of Sekhmet. To remember the banished ones is to face the void. And so, in exchange for their names, he took my own. This will be my last entry. Here, on this page, I leave my last words to the world, though they may never be known. Each letter's ink lifts from the page like ash on a breeze. And as I lay here dying, slowly collapsing to dust, without the essence of a self, I cannot help but reach out to another in vain. I cannot help but try to leave a memory. Please remember me. My name is... Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside, repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed They Die Nameless by Aaron Shotwell, as performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed the preceding tale, please consider supporting the author by picking up a copy of his collection of 15 terrifying short stories entitled Pleasant Nightmares, now available on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback editions. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com slash pleasantnightmares, all one word, and you'll be redirected to where you can pick up a copy today. Or see our show notes for a link. Thanks for your support of the author and indie author. Up next, we've got one final round of frightening fiction for you. Our next terrifying tale comes to us from author Brian Russell and is a veritable creepypasta classic, previously adapted to television as part of Nick and Tosca's creepypasta television series, Channel Zero. 
In this, the original tale, we'll meet a young man with very little to lose, who takes up a challenge to spend some time in a house that promises a cash prize if you can survive long enough to come out the other side. Without further ado, I present to you No End House. Let me start off by saying that Peter Terry was addicted to heroin. We were both friends in college and continued to be after I graduated. Notice that I said I. He dropped out after two years of barely cutting it. After I moved out of the dorms and into a small apartment, I didn't see Peter as much. We would talk online every now and then. AIM was king in pre-Facebook days. There was a period where he wasn't online for about five weeks straight. I wasn't worried. He was a pretty notorious flake and drug addict, so I assumed he just stopped caring. But then, one night, I saw him come on. Before I could initiate a conversation, he sent me a message. David, man, we need to talk. That was when he told me about No End House. It got that name because no one had ever reached the final exit. The rules were pretty simple and cliché. Reach the final room of the building and you win $500, nine rooms and all. The house was located outside the city, roughly four miles from my house. Apparently he had tried and failed. He was a heroin and who knows what else addict, so I figured the drugs got the best of him and he wigged out at a paper ghost or something. He told me it would be too much for anyone, that it was unnatural. I didn't believe him. Why would I? I told him I would check it out the next night, and no matter how hard he tried to convince me otherwise, $500 sounded too good to be true. I had to. I set out the following night. This is what happened. When I arrived, I immediately noticed something strange about the building. Have you ever seen or read something that shouldn't be scary, but for some reason... A chill crawls up your spine. I walked toward the building, and the feeling of uneasiness only intensified as I opened the front door. My heart slowed, and I let a relieved sigh leave me as I entered. The room looked like a normal hotel lobby decorated for Halloween. A sign was posted in place of a worker. It read, Room 1, this way. Eight more to follow. Reach the end and you win. I chuckled and made my way to the first door. The first area was almost laughable. The decor resembled the Halloween aisle out of uh, Kmart, complete with sheet ghosts and animatronic zombies that gave a static growl when you passed by. At the far end was an exit, the only door besides the one I entered through. I brushed through the fake spiderwebs and headed for the second room. I was greeted by fog as I opened the door to room two. The room definitely upped the ante in terms of technology. There was not only a fog machine, but a bat hung from the ceiling and flew in a circle. Scary. They seemed to have a Halloween soundtrack that one would find in a 99-cent store on loop somewhere in the room. I didn't see a stereo, but I guessed they must have used a PA system. I stepped over a few toy rats that wheeled around and walked with a puffed chest across the room to the next area. I reached for the doorknob, and my heart sank to my knees. I did not want to open that door. A feeling of dread hit me so hard I could barely even think. Logic overtook me after a few terrified moments, and I shook it off and entered the next room. Room three is when things began to change. On the surface, it looked like a normal room. There was a chair in the middle of the wood-paneled floor. A single lamp in the corner did a poor job of lighting the area, and it cast a few shadows across the floors and walls. That was the problem. Shadows. Plural. In addition to the shadow being cast by the chair, there were others. I had barely walked in the door, and I was already terrified. It was at that moment that I knew something wasn't right. I didn't even think as I automatically tried to open the door I came through. It was locked from the other side. That set me off. 
Was someone locking it as I progressed? There was no way. I would have heard them. Was it a mechanical lock that set automatically? Well, maybe. But I was too scared to really think. I turned back to the room and the shadows were gone. The chair's shadow remained, but the others were gone. I slowly began to walk. I used to hallucinate when I was a kid, so I wrote off the shadows as a figment of my imagination. I began to feel better as I made it to the halfway point of the room. I looked down as I took my steps, and that's when I saw it, or didn't see it. My own shadow wasn't there. I didn't have time to scream. Without thinking, I ran as fast as I could to the other door and flung myself into the room beyond. The fourth room was possibly the most disturbing. As I closed the door, all light seemed to be sucked out and put back in the previous room. I stood there, surrounded by darkness, and I couldn't move. I wasn't afraid of the dark, never have been, but I was absolutely terrified. All sight had left me. I held my hand in front of my face, and if I didn't know I was doing so, I would never have been able to tell. Darkness isn't a sufficient word to describe it. I couldn't hear anything, nothing but dead silence. When you're in a soundproof room, you can still hear yourself breathing. You can hear yourself being alive. I couldn't. I began to stumble forward after a few moments, my rapidly beating heart the only thing I could feel. There was no door in sight. I wasn't even sure there was a door this time. The silence was then broken by a low hum. I felt something behind me. I spun around wildly, but could barely even see my nose. I knew it was there, though. Regardless of how dark it was, I knew something was there. The hum grew louder, closer. It seemed to surround me, but I knew whatever was causing the noise was in front of me, inching closer. I took a step back. I had never felt that kind of fear. I can't really describe true fear. I wasn't even scared I was going to die. I was scared of what the alternative was. I was afraid of what this thing had in store for me. Then the lights flashed for less than a second, and I saw it. Nothing. I saw nothing. And I know I saw nothing there. The room was again plunged into darkness, and the hum became a wild screech. I screamed in protest. I couldn't stand to listen to the sound for another minute. I ran backwards, away from the sound, and fumbled for the door handle. I turned, and as I did so, I fell into room five. Before I describe room five, you have to understand something. I am not a drug addict. Short of the childhood hallucinations I mentioned earlier, I have had no drug history, no abuse, or any sort of psychosis. And in my younger years, I only suffered from such hallucinations when I was really tired or just waking up. I entered the no-end house with a clear head. After falling in from the previous room, my view of room five was from my back looking up at the ceiling. What I saw didn't scare me, it simply surprised me. Trees had grown into the room and towered above my head. The ceilings in this room were taller than the others, which made me think I was in the center of the house. I got up off the floor, dusted myself off, and took a look around. It was definitely the biggest room yet. I couldn't even see the door from where I was, as various brush and trees blocked my line of sight leading to the exit. Up until this point, I figured the rooms were going to get scarier, but this was a paradise compared to the last room. I also assumed that whatever was back in room four stayed back there. I was incredibly wrong. As I made my way deeper into the room, I began to hear what one would hear if they were in a forest. Chirping birds and the occasional flap of birds seemed to be my only company in this room, and that was what bothered me most. I heard bugs and other animals, but I didn't see any of them began to wonder how big this house was. When I had first walked up to the house from the outside, it looked like a regular house. It was definitely on the bigger side, but certainly it wasn't large enough to contain a full forest. 
and yet here it was, a thick, towering mass of trees, all somehow contained within room five. The canopy covered my view of the ceiling, but I assumed it was still there, however high it was. I couldn't see any walls, though. If it hadn't been for the standard dark wood paneling on the floor, which matched that of the other rooms, I would have had no way of knowing I was still indoors. I kept walking, hoping that the next tree I passed would reveal the door. After a few moments of walking, I felt a mosquito fly into my arm. I shook it off and kept going. A second later, I felt about ten more land on my skin in different places. I felt them crawl up and down my arms and legs, and a few made their way across my face. I flailed wildly to get them all off, but they just kept crawling. I looked down and let out a muffled scream, more of a whimper to be honest. I didn't see a single bug. Not one bug was on me, but I could feel them crawl. I heard them fly by my face and sting my skin, but I couldn't see a single one. I dropped to the ground and began to roll wildly. I was desperate. I hated bugs, especially ones I couldn't see or touch. But these bugs could touch me, and they were everywhere. I began to crawl, though I had no idea where I was going. The entrance was nowhere in sight, and I still hadn't even seen the exit. So I just crawled my skin wriggling with the presence of these phantom bugs. After what seemed like hours, I found the door. I grabbed the nearest tree and propped myself up, mindlessly slapping my arms and legs to no avail. I tried to run, but I couldn't. My body was exhausted from crawling and dealing with whatever it was that was on me. I took a few shaky steps to the door, grabbing each tree on the way for support. It was only a few feet away when I heard it, the low hum from before. It was coming from the next room, and it was deeper. I could almost feel it inside my body, like when you stand next to an amp at a concert. The feeling of the bugs on me lessened as the hum grew louder. As I placed my hand on the doorknob, the bugs were completely gone. But I couldn't bring myself to turn the knob. I knew that if I let go, the bugs would return and there was no way I would make it back to room four. I just stood there, my head pressed against the door marked with the number six, and grasped the knob with my shaking hands. By that point, the hum was so loud I couldn't even hear myself pretend to think. There was nothing I could do but move on. Room six was next, and room six was hell. I closed the door behind me, my eyes held shut, and my ears ringing. The hum was surrounding me. As the door clicked into place, the hum quickly lessened in intensity and was soon gone. I opened my eyes in surprise, and the door I had shut was gone. It was just a wall now. I looked around in shock. The room was identical to room three with the same chair and lamp, but with the correct number of shadows this time. The only real difference was that there was no exit door, and the one I entered through was now gone. As I said before, I had no previous issues in terms of mental instability, but at that moment I fell into what I know now as insanity. I didn't scream. I didn't make a sound. At first I scratched, softly. The wall was tough, but I knew the door was there somewhere. I just knew it was. I scratched at where the doorknob was. I clawed at the wall frantically with both hands, tore at the wood, filing my nails down to the skin. Then I fell silently to my knees. The only sound in the room, the incessant scratching against the wall. I knew it was there. The door was there. I knew it was just there. I knew if I could just get past this wall, I... Are you all right? I jumped off the ground and spun in one motion. I leaned against the wall behind me and saw what it was that spoke to me. To this day, I regret ever turning around. It was a little girl. A little girl wearing a soft white dress that went down to her ankles. She had white skin, blue eyes, and long blonde hair reaching to the middle of her back. She was the most frightening thing I had ever seen, and I know that nothing in my life will ever be as unnerving as what I saw in her. While looking at her, I saw the young girl, but I also saw something else. Where she stood, I saw what 
looked like a man's body, only larger than normal and covered in hair. He was naked from head to toe, but his head was not human, and his toes were hooves. It wasn't the devil, but at that moment it might as well have been. The form had the head of a ram and the snout of a wolf. It was horrifying, and it was synonymous with the little girl in front of me. They were the same form. I can't really describe it, but I saw them at the same time. They shared the same spot in that room, but it was like looking at two separate dimensions. When I saw the girl, I saw the form, and when I saw the form, I saw the girl. I couldn't speak. I could barely even see. My mind was revolting against what it was attempting to process. I had been scared before in my life, and I had never been more scared than when I was trapped in the fourth room. But that was before room six. I just stood there, staring at whatever it was that spoke to me. There was no exit. I was trapped in there with it. And then it spoke again. David, you should have just listened. When it spoke, I heard the words of the little girl, but the other form spoke through my mind in a voice I won't attempt to describe. There was no other sound. The voice just kept repeating that sentence over and over into my mind, and I agreed. I didn't know what to do. I was slipping into madness, yet I couldn't take my eyes off of what was in front of me. I dropped to the floor. I thought I would pass out, but the room wouldn't let me. I just wanted it to end. I was on my side, my eyes wide open, the form staring down at me. Scurrying across the floor in front of me was one of the battery-powered rats from the second room. The house was toying with me, but for some reason seeing that rat pulled my mind back from whatever depths it was headed for, and I looked around the room. I was getting out of there. I was determined to get out of that house and live and never think about this place again. I knew this room was hell, and I wasn't ready to take up a residency. At first, it was just my eyes that moved. I searched the walls for any kind of opening. The room wasn't that big, so it didn't take long to soak up the entire layout. The demon still taunted me, the voice growing louder, as the form stayed rooted where it stood. I placed my hand on the floor and lifted myself up on all fours, and I turned to scan the wall behind me. Then I saw something I couldn't believe. The form was now right at my back, whispering into my ear, "'You shouldn't have come, David.' I felt its breath on the back of my neck, but I refused to turn around. A large rectangle was scratched into the wood, with a small dent chipped away in the center of it, and right in front of my eyes I saw the large number seven I had mindlessly etched into the wall. I knew what it was. Room seven was just beyond that wall where room five had been moments ago. I don't know how I managed to do it, Maybe it was just my state of mind at the time, but I had created the door. I knew I had. In my madness, I had scratched into the wall what I needed the most, an exit to the next room. Room 7 was close. I knew the demon was right behind me, but for some reason, it couldn't touch me. I closed my eyes and placed both hands on the large number 7 in front of me, and I pushed I pushed as hard as I could. The demon was now screaming in my ear. It told me I was never leaving. It told me that this was the end, but that I wasn't going to die, that I was going to live there in room six with it. I wasn't. I pushed and screamed at the top of my lungs. I knew I was going to push through the wall eventually. I clenched my eyes shut and screamed, and the demon was gone. I was left in silence. I turned around slowly and was greeted by the room as it was when I entered, just a chair and a lamp. I couldn't believe it, but I didn't have time to dwell. I turned back to the room and jumped back slightly. What I saw was a door, not one that I had scratched in, but a regular door with a large seven on it. My whole body was shaking. It took me a while to turn the knob. I just stood there for a while, staring at the door. I couldn't stay in room six. I couldn't. But if this was the only room six, I couldn't imagine what seven had in store. I must have stood there for an hour just staring at the seven. 
Finally, with a deep breath, I twisted the knob and opened the door to room seven. I stumbled through the door, mentally exhausted and physically weak. The door behind me closed, and I realized where I was. I was outside. Not outside like room five, but actually outside. My eyes stung. I wanted to cry. I fell to my knees and tried to force myself to tear up, but I couldn't. I was finally out of that hell. I didn't even care about the prize that was promised. I turned and saw that the door I just went through was the entrance. I walked to my car and drove home, thinking of how nice a shower sounded. As I pulled up to my house, I felt uneasy. The joy of leaving No End House had faded, and dread was slowly building in my stomach. I shook it off as residual fear of the house and made my way to the front door. I entered and immediately went up to my room. On my bed was my cat, Baskerville. He was the first living thing I had seen all night, and I reached out to pet him. He hissed and swiped at my hand. I recoiled in shock as he had never acted like that. I thought, whatever, he's an old cat, and I headed to the bathroom. I jumped in the shower and prepared for what I expected would be a sleepless night. After the shower, I went to my kitchen to make some food. I descended the stairs and turned into the family room, and what I saw is forever burned into my mind. My parents were lying on the ground, naked and covered in blood. They were mutilated to such a degree that I hardly recognized them. Their limbs were removed and placed next to their bodies. Their heads were placed on their chests, facing me. The most unsettling part was their expressions. They were smiling, as though they were happy to see me. I vomited and sobbed right there in the family room. I didn't know what had happened. They didn't even live with me at the time. I was a mess, and then I saw it. A door that had never been there before. A door with a large number eight scrawled on in blood. I was still in the no-end house. I was standing in what I thought was my family room, but it was room seven. As this occurred to me, I happened to notice that the smile on the faces of my parents' severed heads were widening. They weren't my parents, I thought they couldn't be, but they looked exactly like them. Across the room, beyond the mutilated corpses before me, I saw a door marked with the number eight. I knew I had to move on, but at that moment I gave up. The smiling faces tore into my mind, grounding me where I stood. I vomited again, and nearly collapsed. Then the hum returned. It was louder than ever, and it filled the house and shook the walls. The hum compelled me to walk. I began to walk slowly, making my way closer to the door and the bodies. I could barely stand, let alone walk, and the closer I got to my parents, the closer I came to suicide. The walls were now shaking so hard, it seemed as though they were going to crumble, but the faces still smiled at me. As I inched closer, their eyes followed me. When I was between the two bodies, a few feet away from the door, the dismembered hands began to claw their way across the carpet towards me. All the while, the faces continued to stare. New terror washed over me, and I walked faster. I didn't want to hear them speak. I didn't want the voices to match those of my parents. They began to open their mouths, and the hands were now inches from my feet. In desperation, I lunged toward the door, threw it open, and slammed it shut behind me. That was it, I thought. Roommate, I was done. After that, what I had just experienced, I knew there wasn't anything else the house could throw at me that I couldn't live through. There was nothing short of the fires of hell that I wasn't ready for. Unfortunately, I underestimated the abilities of no end house. To my horror, room eight was more disturbing, more terrifying, and more unspeakable. I still have trouble believing what I saw in Room 8. Once again, the room was a carbon copy of Room 3, but now, in the chair that had previously been empty, sat a man. 
After a few seconds of disbelief, my mind finally accepted the fact that the man sitting in the chair was me. Not someone who looked like me. It was David Williams. I walked closer. Even though I was sure of it, I had to get a better look. He looked up at me, and I noticed tears in his eyes. Please, please don't do it. Please, don't hurt me. What? I said. Who are you? I'm not going to hurt you. Yes, you are, he sobbed. You're going to hurt me, and I don't want you to. He sat in the chair with his legs up and began rocking back and forth. It was actually really pathetic looking, especially since he was me, identical in every way. Listen, who are you? I was now only a few feet from my doppelganger. It was the weirdest experience yet standing there, talking to myself. I wasn't scared, but I would be soon. Why are you... You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me, it interrupted. If you want to leave, you're going to hurt me. Why are you saying this, I asked. Just calm down, all right? Let's try and figure this... And then I saw it. The David sitting down was wearing the same clothes as me, except for a small red patch on his shirt, embroidered with the number nine. You're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. Please, don't. You're going to hurt me. My eyes didn't leave that small number on his chest. I knew exactly what it was. The first few doors had been plain and simple, but after a while they got a little more ambiguous. Seven had been scratched into the wall, but by my own hands. Eight had been marked in blood above the bodies of my parents. But nine, this number was on a person, a living person. And worse still, it was on a person that looked exactly like me. David, I had to ask. Yes, you're going to hurt me. You're going to hurt me. He continued to sob and rock. He answered to David. It was me, right down to the voice. But that nine. I paced around for a few minutes while he sobbed in his chair. The room had no door, and similarly to room six, the door I came through was gone. For some reason, I assumed that scratching would get me nowhere this time. I studied the walls the floor around the chair, sticking my head underneath and seeing if anything was below. Unfortunately, there was. Below the chair, there was a knife. Attached was a tag that read, To David, from management. The feeling in my stomach as I read that tag was something sinister. I wanted to throw up. The last thing I wanted to do was remove that knife from under that chair. The other David was still sobbing uncontrollably. My mind was spinning into an attic of unanswerable questions. Who put this here? And how did they get my name? Not to mention the fact that as I knelt on the cold wood floor, I also sat in that chair, sobbing in protest of being hurt by myself. It was all too much to process. The house and the management had been playing with me this whole time. My thoughts, for some reason, turned to Peter and whether or not he got this far. And if he did, if he met a Peter Terry sobbing in this very chair, rocking back and forth, what did he do? I shook those thoughts out of my head. They didn't matter. I took the knife from under the chair, and immediately the other David went quiet. David, he said in my voice, what do you think you're going to do? I lifted myself from the ground and clenched the knife in my hand. I'm going to get out of here. David was still sitting in the chair, though he was very calm now. He looked up at me with a slight grin. I couldn't tell if he was going to laugh or strangle me. Slowly, he got up from the chair and stood facing me. It was uncanny. His height and even the way he stood matched mine. I felt the rubber hilt of the knife in my hand and gripped it tighter. I didn't know what I was planning on doing with it, but I had a feeling I was going to need it. Now, 
His voice was slightly deeper than my own. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to hurt you, and I'm going to keep you here. I didn't respond. I just lunged and tackled him to the ground. I mounted him and looked down, knife poised and ready. He looked up at me, terrified. It was like I was looking in a mirror. Then the hum returned, low and distant, though I still felt it deep in my body. David looked up at me as I looked down at myself. The hum was getting louder, and I felt something inside me snap. With one motion, I slammed the knife into the patch on his chest and ripped down. Blackness fell on the room, and I was falling. The darkness around me was like nothing I had experienced up to that point. Room three was dark, but it didn't come close to what was completely engulfing me. After a while, I wasn't even sure I was falling. I felt weightless, covered in dark. And then a deep sadness came over me. I felt lost, depressed, and suicidal. The sight of my parents entered my mind. I knew it wasn't real, but I had seen it. And the mind has trouble differentiating between what is real and what isn't. The sadness only deepened. I was in room nine for what seemed like days. The final room. And that's exactly what it was, the end. No end house had an end, and I had reached it. At that moment, I gave up. I knew I would be in that in-between state forever, accompanied by nothing but darkness. Not even the hum was there to keep me sane. I had lost all senses. I couldn't feel myself, couldn't hear anything. Sight was useless here, and I searched for taste in my mouth and found nothing. I felt disembodied and completely lost. I knew where I was. It was hell. Room nine was hell. And then it happened. A light. One of those stereotypical lights at the end of the tunnel. Then I felt ground come up from below me, and I was standing. After a moment or two, uh, gathering my thoughts and senses... I slowly walked toward that light. As I approached the light, it took form. It was a vertical slit down the side of a door, this time unmarked. I slowly walked through the door and found myself back where I started, standing in the lobby of No End House. It was exactly how I left it. Still empty, still decorated with childish Halloween decorations. After everything that had happened that night, I was still wary of where I was. And after a few moments of normalcy, I looked around the place, trying to find anything different. On the desk was a plain white envelope with my name handwritten on it. Immensely curious, yet still cautious, I mustered up the courage to open the envelope. Inside was a letter, again handwritten. David Williams. Congratulations. You've made it to the end of No End House. Please accept this prize as a token of your great achievement. Yours forever, Management. With the letter, there were five $100 bills. I couldn't stop laughing. I laughed for what seemed like hours. I laughed as I walked out to my car and laughed as I drove home. I laughed as I pulled into my driveway and laughed as I approached the front door of my house. And I laughed when I saw the small number 10 etched into the wood. This episode is made possible by PwC. When unprecedented times are all the time, it's time to start walking the talk. Leaders like you turn to PwC to see and stay ahead. Upskill your workforce, use intelligent automation, and transform big ideas into breakthrough outcomes. Explore the human-led, tech-powered solutions that help you thrive. It's all part of The New Equation. Learn more at thenewequation.com. I hope you enjoyed No End House by Brian Russell and performed by yours truly. I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this bonus episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark part of a new series in which I share a handful of creepy tales from my extensive audio archive with you each and every Wednesday. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcast 
and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear more content from my archive, as well as premium extended editions of my regular episodes featuring twice the tear, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase a season's pass for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 a month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Gyrie channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Gyrie. Until next time, stay spooky and get some sleep if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, the Otis Jiry channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. 
If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.